2, The Drummer and the Great Mountain, a podcast where we share effective tips and practices for working with adult ADD, ADHD in a natural, effective way without the use of medications. Each episode, join me, your host, Batman Saram, along with the author of The Drummer and the Great Mountain, Michael Joseph Ferguson. Join Michael and myself in an interactive discussion of sharing our stories as we journey together in transforming what can be the gift of being what we call hunter types. This podcast is intended to be your audio companion to the book written by Michael, who joins me each episode where we both will strive to foster dialogue, give you our personal insights, and share both of our experiences on this similar path that we are all on. Our intention and hope is that along with the book, this podcast gives you an additional perspective as you listen to us delve deeper into each chapter of the book to give you even more tools to go along with what it is that you are reading. Visit us at drummerandthegreatmountain.com to purchase the book and look for more tools, tips, and updates, as well as giving us feedback on this podcast. Join our growing global community of creative types, entrepreneurs, and out-of-the-box thinkers on our shared journey. Welcome to the Drummer and the Great Mountain Podcast. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Michael Joseph Ferguson. On today's episode, I will be interviewing occupational therapist Kathleen Lockyer, and we will be discussing the science of nature connection and how it relates with ADHD uh, in terms of reducing anxiety, depression, and reconnecting our nervous system to what it was really built for. I reached out to Kathleen after seeing a talk that she gave a few years ago, and I was uh, just blown away, and I thought her work so deeply connects with what we talk about on this podcast, and I was not uh, disappointed. It's a really good interview, and I hope you enjoy it. Okay, just one quick announcement. Our next live online workshop has been moved to early August due to some scheduling conflicts. So if you're on the wait list, you will be getting an email in the next couple of weeks. Um, the wait list is now closed because we had so many people request it. And if there are any spots open after that, um, we will open it up to the main list. But I can't, there's quite a few people on the wait list. So um, they get first dibs. So um, that will be in early August. And uh, just stay tuned, keep an eye on your emails. Um, and we'll send up probably a, a couple to the wait list uh, before opening it up to full registration. Nature has wired us hunter types with superpowers connected to survival and a refined connection to our surroundings. Hyperactivity, distractibility, hypersensitivity, all may have roots in key biological functions that have helped us survive and thrive in many environments. On this podcast, we've primarily focused on the repurposing of these superpowers to help us navigate the modern world. However, it is through reconnecting to nature that we discover what these gifts were originally intended for. On today's episode, we're honored to have with us occupational therapist Kathleen Lockyer. Kathleen has practiced occupational therapy for 25 years, specializing in sensory processing. Through her consulting business, RX Outside, she leads in-person and online workshops to rehabilitate the human-nature connection for children and adults. 
She runs an online membership site called The Nature Led Approach and is the director at a full-time alternative school where she implements the Nature Led Approach. In 2004, she co-founded a nonprofit, Outside Now, and she has just finished writing her first book. However, Kathleen's favorite role in life is as a mother to her two grown daughters. Welcome, Kathleen. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Michael. So I wanted to start. There's so much to cover here. Um, I just wanted to start by introducing our listeners to what is an occupational therapist. I know you get this question all the time. So would you share a little bit about that in your work over the past, say, 25 years? I will do my best. You know, I've been, like you said, an OT for 25 years, and um, I still am trying to explain it to my father. So (laughs) what it is that I do. Um, But the, you know, the theory behind occupational therapy is that how we occupy our time so the activities of our daily lives um, contribute to or take away from our health and well-being. Mm. And so act in act occupation or activity can be anything from sitting and having a cup of coffee in the morning and an occupational therapy is going uh, occupational therapist is going to look at what skills you need to sit there and drink your cup of coffee so you need to be able to lift the mug you need to be mm. able to pour and not spill all of those skills you'll need all the way up through um you know working at a school to being an attorney or the president of the united states so mm. all of those things are occupations and so occupational therapists are trained both in, um, in psychology and physical disabilities to really look at or unpack any activity and the skills that are necessary to be successful in those activities. Mm. Yes. Yeah. And it sounds like that has, that piece of it has led you, what, at what point did nature connection become the piece that you really dove into as part of like, as the, uh, it sounds like it's the guiding force behind a lot of what you do. Yeah, it sure is. You know, I think that the reality is nature connection led me to become an occupational therapist. Mm. Um, I was raised in a very unique situation with a a father who uh, was the last fisherman of our family heritage from Newfoundland, Canada. That's Mm, an island off the eastern seaboard of the United States and a mother who was a debutante from New York City. Uh, (laughs) Oh, interesting. Very. That's very interesting. Yeah. And so I had um, a real dual perspective of looking at life, but my father gave me nature connection from the time I was a young child. And, um, and so I was always really witnessing the world through the eyes of nature and the forms, patterns, and rhythms of the natural world, because we do learn from the modeling of our adults in our environment. And my father, without him even realizing it, was always modeling that nature connection. Hmm. So, um, so I became an occupational therapist, really um, not fully understanding at first that I could access nature connection. But as I learned more and more, and really, even after graduation, I dove much deeper into the neurological system and human development and, and then landed on our sensory processing system. And that right there married nature connection for me and human development, because we develop our, our senses are our user interface with 
the yes. world around us. And so, um, so that really, so for, for the entirety of my, um, of my career, but then years ago when I moved to California, because I I'm from the East coast originally, um, I moved to California in 2003 and in 2004, I met a man named John Young, who um, has become a dear friend of mine. And, um, and really we started to, I went to a workshop he was given, giving, and, um, and I was listening to him speak. And, and I was having this experience where I was looking around and everyone seemed to think that what he was saying was very profound. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it was indeed. And I, you know, yeah. and for, but for me, you know, I kept thinking, well, doesn't everybody think this way? And then, um, mm. and then John said, he made a statement several times in the course of that workshop. And he said, we don't know why this stuff works. It just does. Yeah. And, um, and so I went up to him after and I said, we do know why this stuff works and I'm going to help uh, you understand. And so he and I really sh over a number of years, probably, gosh, how many years now? Uh, maybe how old's my daughter? Uh, 17 years, maybe. We, wow. Interesting. We, yeah. We've shared just a lot of, uh, a learning and, um, and so it's, and, and then of course, many other people I've trained with and studied with. Um, I've, I've learned a lot from the sensory processing disorder foundation and mm. Lucy Jane Miller and some, some other folks. Um, and, and then, and how can you not consider nature when you think about, especially when you talk about the hunter type, I, I just thought that was absolutely brilliant when I heard that. Mm. Well, see, you're connecting some dots for me because when I discovered John Young's work, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is where I've been in circles, like around him, like in the permaculture crew and all like, so he's been there. I just never heard of him for some reason. And ah, so hearing your, like what you contributed, like how you connected with that work. Yeah. I can I really see where that's the other piece. It's like, there is somewhat of a, an alternative crew of people in terms of uh, permaculture and NVC that have kind of been behind the scenes a bit over the last 25 ish years, maybe longer um, that have been doing these things, but it, they've not been known by the mainstream, nor has there been an interface to make it accessible to a lot of people that maybe didn't give up a few years of their life and travel around and live like a hippie, like I did <laughs> in my late twenties. So they just don't, there's no content. Had I not like sold my company when I was 25 and just had a guitar and a backpack and just ventured off, ended up on Kauai for a number of years, I would never have learned any of this. There's no way there was no context for it. So in hearing uh, what you've been doing for the past 25 years, it sounds like, like I think we were talking about this before uh, we got on the mics, is basically tw um, being able to be a bridge for this information so that it can be adopted and hopefully even taken into um, organizations that they can schooling and things like that. So to me, this is, I feel this is a really uh, important conversation, especially as what we've just come through with COVID and we're slowly getting out of that. Um, I think people have found, besides just baking bread, <laughs> they've right. actually gotten out and potentially uh, spent more time playing with their kids. So, um, but I want to come back to one of the things that I heard you mention. So I, I found you through watching a talk with you and John Young, uh, that was, I think it was the University of Michigan uh, on YouTube. There was like a, there was a conference that you guys were at and you had mentioned this phrase, we're losing our senses. And that 
really struck me. And you had some really interesting stats to back that up. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that in terms of especially child development and what you're, you've been seeing. I know this is so, it's, it's, it's a sad topic, but I think we need to talk about that in order to see how important it is to go into some of the potential solutions. Yeah, um, well, it is a sad topic on the one hand. On the other hand, I always like to, to remind people that, it, you know, once we have awareness around what the problem is, the solution is really quite simple. So don't, don't um, lose, lose heart here because it's, the solutions really are so um, accessible for everybody. Mm. Um, but yes, we are losing our senses. Uh, not, and that is a, Something that the science world has been seeing for a long time, certainly occupational therapists who've been practicing sensory processing since the early 1970s. And then some other researchers who started to look at this in the 1970s as well from the University of Binion in, um, I don't know if I'm even saying that correctly, but in Germany, they put, mm. they started putting out some studies around the senses way back then and discovering that in fact, in 20 years time, people were moving from having been able to detect, uh, I, I believe it was 350 different shades of the same color to, um, to all the way down to a hundred and something. I don't have the statistic right with me right now, but yeah. it was significant. And then they did the yeah. same thing with, with looking at sound and very similar statistics. And so um, they started looking more about more into that back then. But in the course of my 25 year career, I mean, I have seen such a significant change in the sensory processing abilities of children and adults, in fact, yeah. um, that it's, it's alarming. It's absolutely alarming. And when you think about our sensory system, so most people are thinking about the, the sight, the sound, smell, taste, touch, yeah. but then we have two others, the proprioceptive and vestibular systems. And that's how you feel your body through your muscles and joints. That's your proprioceptive. Yeah. And then your vestibular is your sense of balance or gravity. Mm -hmm. And so those, all those systems that I just mentioned, um, we come passively wired with those systems, but in order to develop them, we have to actively fire them and we have to engage them in a conscious way. And that conscious way for millions of years came through what I call our survival bias. We all have a survival bias. Yeah. And so we were interpreting our environment constantly through our senses so that we could have a better chance of, of being successful at living and surviving. Yes. yes. Um, but uh, things have changed so drastically that one, there's two things going on. One, there's so much stimuli yes. that um, it's overwhelming to our systems. So children either tend to um, uh, develop in a way that they tune it out or they're, if they're highly sensitive, they're overwhelmed by it. Um, yes. And then the other half of that is that because we're not operating through that original survival bias, so it's not like an immediate threat to our lives, um, our, our neurological system actually doesn't know what to pay attention to anymore. Yeah. And yeah. so that creates a lot of stress and anxiety. And also we, um, we can't, we literally can't focus or attend 
to our senses because we don't know what we're supposed to um, we're supposed to uh, take in. Yes. And this is such a, uh, this conversation, especially as it relates to the label ADHD and some of those, uh, the symptoms of hyperactivity, overwhelm, which, which is one that doesn't get talked about that much, but that's like one of the biggest uh, symptoms of ADHD. If you're wired that way, you have, it's overwhelm is one of the key pieces. And it's that sensitivity that is sort of the hallmark of someone who is wired that way from some kids to adults. And to me, as you were talking, I'm thinking, okay, this is, um, this is at the root of so many uh, psychological challenges that everyone has, but especially when you're a sensitive person uh, and you have these hypersensitive nerve endings and you're not utilizing them in the way that were intended, where you're staring at a screen, you're not moving as much, then all the, like the sensory system just sort of implodes and it goes and it goes into depression. It goes into addiction oftentimes, especially with ADHD, as you get older, that becomes a, a real, and, and even children in terms of tech and everything else that's hyper, anything that's stimulating, um, we get caught by stimuli. That's sort of what happens. That's like being unable to extract ourselves from something that's, that's, that's giving us some kind of dopamine hit. It's hard to extract ourselves as adults. Kids don't even have a chance because they haven't even developed yet what it's like to be able to um, manage their, their, their neurological system. So um, I guess going into a conversation about nature connection, I think we need to define that a little bit. So I kind of, I have my understanding of what that term means, but I would love if you could define that a little bit because it's beyond just, okay, go out in nature. It's, it's definitely much more, uh, it's, a, it's a subtle conversation. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about when you talk about nature connection, what does that actually mean? Right. So, um, so that's a really good distinction to make um, because we know that going outside in and of itself is wonderful and amazing. We know that even just sitting inside and looking outside at the green the studies show that that's going to be beneficial to us. So the, the difference between nature connection and just being in nature is that, um, you know, sending your kids out to to play, that's kind of the first order of business. Wonderful. That's great. Yeah. But then what do they do once they get there? And how do you facilitate that and support that? Because just like our sensory systems um, are designed, um, they come passively wired, uh, but you have to actively fire them. It's the same thing with nature and nature connection. Um, so you can go out and you can be a recreationist in nature and that's wonderful. But if you take a moment to attend or attune to the natural world through your senses in a conscious way, then you are beginning to build a relationship with the natural world. And it's that relationship. I like to call it a converse an ongoing conversation that mm. we can begin to have with the natural world. And that is where you really start to see significant change and benefits um, in the neurological system, in anxiety and depression. And, you know, when you were just bringing up some of those statistics, one statistic that I didn't say that is one of the hardest to think about is that anxiety and depression, even prior to the pandemic, were the, um, the leading cause of disease burden worldwide. Yeah, that's anxiety an incredible statistic. 
Yeah. And we know that the sense, our sensory processing system, so our ability to integrate our senses, to take in all the information from the environment, um, categorize it in our minds, file it away, and then be able to um, respond to the environment, or actually we're designed to predict the environment, not even to respond, but to correctly predict our environment. That is sensory integration. And so really nature connection is attuning to and integrating with the natural world as opposed to just being in it. Yes. And I think that's a really important distinction. And, um, and, and it's a practice as I've, I've it's over, especially since I was introduced to John Young's work and, and started to practice give, having a sit spot going through and, and, and tuning. I, I could feel how my wiring had always, it's, it's, all, it's always been there. There's always this, the sensitivity had always been there, but it had never been applied in a way that I thought to apply it, which is like growing up, I remember having, um, I was, I was a musician, like I took two paths. One was I was into computers very early on and I was also a musician. And those two worlds kind of still to this day, still kind of go back and forth. And I remember having such refined hearing that I could, I remember I took a tape deck back to the store because I said, you know, there's a slight trill um, if you listen to it, I, I, and, and the guy couldn't even hear. He's like, are you kidding? He says, yeah. yeah. And I said, well, I adjusted it a little bit. I noticed it was slightly slow by just, and he couldn't hear anything. And I, it wasn't until much later that I realized, oh, wow, that's this thing that made me really hypersensitive and overwhelmed when I heard fire engines and things like that was the superpower. Like I could use this for, for music and for uh, did a lot of producing music production. And so to me, it was like, oh, this is the other side of it. And now when I see people and work with people that have hypersensitivity, I'm, I'm like, okay, well, these are all gifts, but you have to care for it in such a way that it, it can fully manifest itself. And that's what I've heard from your talk was, how do you get to a place where you have practices that engage these senses so they wake back up to the point where you're not only are you using them but you're experiencing a wholeness that may not be maybe kind of the, the flip side of what depression and anxiety is so I, I guess I would like to steer the conversation towards um, I was reading one of your blog articles about I think it was about a kid named Alan if you remember that from one of your blog articles, he had ADHD and you talked about his process of, of recovery and what nature connection did for him. And I don't want to put you on the spot if, but I because I know it was an older blog article, but I just want to hear a little bit about what has your experience been with working with kids that were labeled ADHD and in seeing what nature connection did for them. Oh, I have so, so many stories. <laughs> I'm trying to think about that story. I think that might've been a story I wrote for California Audubon. I think that's the one you're talking about. Cause I, I can't use the, the actual correct names of the children. So I will make, uh, that's right. you know, that, got it, got it, got I it, make got it, it up in yes. the, the blog and um, um, the name of the child, not the actual blog, but um, yes. so yeah, so many stories of children who've been labeled as um, with attention deficit in some fashion. Um, but I, I, one of my favorites is, um, is this one little guy, um, I'm going to call him Charlie, um, <laughs> hmm. uh, Charlie was in, I believe third grade. So, so I get a lot of referrals in my private, um, consulting for third, fourth graders. 
And um, because, you know, we're, we're all designed intelligently. And so kids are so smart and they can generally really keep it together and kind of mask things until about third or fourth grade. And then it just gets harder and harder. And so it's like a house of cards that starts falling apart for them. And so I get the calls at those ages. So this, I think he was about in third grade and um, I was running a nature connection program that was um, one, two or three days a week. You could put your kid in it at this time. And Charlie was getting red cards all over the place in school. And in his school, that was the system of behavioral management um, where something would happen and you'd get a red card. So many red cards, you lose your recess. So many, you, you know, stay oh, after school. Yes. All that stuff, oh, I'm right? just having <laughs> chills remembering this right? from having like, yeah, that's like PTSD. Oh, oh I know all my, I, they're my kids and my poor kids. Cause they're yeah. the brightest. And I always say that they're my movers and shakers are the kids that can't be quieted you know they're absolutely they're the the kids that won't that they know that there's something wrong there are canaries in the coal mine you know that's right there's something wrong in the environment and they're the ones that are going to sing till that last minute and they're saying please pay attention this is not working and uh, there's nothing wrong with them there's something very right with them and that's that's how I like to see these kids um, but Charlie, uh, so that had been happening for him in school and his poor parents, um, he was so bright. Oh my goodness. So smart. So they asked the school if the school would let him um, do my program one day a week. Of course they said no. So their, his parents started calling him in sick once a week <laughs> and, um, just to see if it would make a difference. And so um, he had been with us maybe three weeks. And he was very shy at first, um, lots of energy, super bright eyes, you know, those big bright eyes looking at everything around him. And uh, we took him to the Salinas River and it was, it was kind of, um, it was cold Mm. and there was a thin layer of ice on the Salinas River. And we had told a story that morning because a lot of our, a lot of my work, we, we do a lot of storytelling. And we told a story of somebody catching fish with their bare hands. And he was listening the entire time, even though he was off on the side digging a hole, right? Because that's very typical. He had to engage himself so he could attune to what was being said and really be able to process the sound and listen. So we allow that because we know how it works. And so he's off doing that. Well, when we finished that story, um, Charlie, who supposedly couldn't sit still for one moment, couldn't focus and couldn't attend. These were all the things that his parents had been told. Um, went and he sat in that freezing cold water for, I mean, for a good 15, 20 minutes mm-hmm. until he caught a little fish in his hands. And, um, and he was shivering. We actually had to ask him to get out of the water because, you know, it was, he really, I didn't want to get hypothermic. Yes, yes. But um, I can tell you story after story after story around uh, my kiddos just being so successful in the natural world. The other thing that you brought up, the sound, um, a lot of musicians, a lot of kids will be able to really pick up instruments. Um, But once you get them outside, these kids who have so much energy and what I call aliveness, um, they are the kids who would be our scouts. They're always the kid who's pointing out the bird sound, the kid who's seeing the track nobody else saw, the kid who's reminding everybody about the poison oak, Um, the the kid who you tell a story once and they can repeat, you know, the different parts if they're in the right environment. You know, if you, if you take a child and this is, 
this is um, my belief as a professional, if you take a child out of the environment that they're being unsuccessful in and you put them in another environment and they're able to be successful, is it actually a disorder? Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, I question that. Yes. That, well, that's definitely what we talk about all the time here. This is, that's the topic. It's like, how do you find your way into, especially as an adult, you know, and again, I'd say there's probably 60, 70% of the people listening are, are parents given just from workshops and things we've done. It's a pretty high amount. It's how do you find your way through the world and reawaken these gifts? And how do you put more of your energy towards that instead of the energy, energy going towards, here's all the stuff that I'm not doing right which is just so common as parents, as well as just functioning in the world, because the world has, is, if, if our society is functional, it makes no sense that we would have set that to go back to your statistic about anxiety and depression. If that level of anxiety and depression exists in modern, in the modern world, then clearly it's a cultural issue and not an issue with us. And so a lot of what we talk about here is how do you, how do you regain your sense of self-esteem where you, you can recognize the game? You're like, oh, okay, this is actually kind of messed up, the world that we're in. So I can then, how do I, but I still need to survive. I still need to show up for work and do the things I need to do. So I guess going back to working with kids, what have you noticed in terms of them integrating back into like schoolwork? And have you noticed any improvements uh, that resulted from more time, time focused on nature connection that, that went into school life, into other things that they were pursuing? Yeah, yes. Um, so the child I was just telling you about, the, the part of the story I left out was that um, once he started coming with us, he actually started saying, started, uh, he didn't get red cards anymore. Um, at school and he was still going to school four days a week. He spent one full day outside with us. And then he was going to school four days a week and stopped like completely stopped getting red cards and was able to articulate to his parents. Nature school is the, makes me be able to do school. Mm. And so um, that's just one example. Um, yes. Kids. So attention and focus are a very interesting topic because how do we learn to attend and focus? Just like we learn everything else, we have to attend and focus. Um, and, and they are built skills. But when you ask somebody to attend and focus to random meaningless things, then um, you're not going to get much buy-in, right? Yes. I mean, yes. if, if I ask any adult uh, sitting in an audience, listening to a lecture that you could care less about, um, how much of that are you going to retain or remember? That's right. Well, we're asking young children who are literally designed to move most of the day and to explore and to um, be turning over rocks and looking at the environment and listening and using all those sensory systems that require them to engage them in order to fully develop integration. Um, and we're asking those kids to do random, meaningless things all day long. Stop this now. Now do this. Stop this now. Okay, get in the car. Okay, now is dinner time. Oh, you're not hungry. It doesn't matter. And right, so right. I call us the ADHD nation because yes. we're, we are creating that That's in right. people by, disc by disconnected, meaningless, random acts 
that are supposed to teach. And, um, and so once you take a child and then you start working with them um, or an adult, I see this with adults as well in a, in an activated, meaningful way that calms their neurological system or their survival bias first, and then attunes them to the environment through an active listening or looking or touching or, you know, all of those sensory interfaces, then you start to see um, the neurological system um, line up the way it was designed to. And that does last. That that kind of entrainment carries over to other things we do. It generalizes. And so you start to see more focus in non-preferred tasks. I'm sure that's a, something that probably yeah. everyone listening to this podcast yes. heard that term before, non-preferred tasks. Yeah. <laughs> mundane tasks. That's what I usually call it. It's non-stimulating mundane tasks. Right, right. But what what happens is I get a lot of people asking this question, but yes, but they need to be able to, yeah, right. uh, they need to be able to, to be in the world and to do the things they don't want to do. Yes, that is true. We all need to do that. And how can we ask a human who has not had the time and chance to actually develop those foundational pieces um, to then do all those non-preferred things? we're putting the cart before the horse. And so once you have a developed integrated child who's been able to explore for, you know, then, then they're much more willing to participate with things they don't want to. And the same is true for me and probably you as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so what I'm, what I'm hearing, and this is where I think our work really overlaps is um, one of the things I talk about a lot because anxiety goes hand in hand with ADHD, like as a label, I mean, it's, it seems to be part of the mix, anxiety and depression, some depression, less, more anxiety, I'd say is across the board in terms of like looking at the list of common symptoms and just my sampling of all the people that I work with. Uh, anxiety is very high on the list. And what I recommend is cardio exercise every day, get out in nature. Like that, that will help. And I see that over and over again, that little simple thing, 10 minutes, 10 minutes. I always tell, say, you can get outside, find a nature spot, find a park, go for a run for 10 minutes. Tell me that you don't feel better after. So I guess my question to you is if you are, um, when you see kids that especially struggle with anxiety as well, or depression, what is, what have you noticed that nature connection does for them? Have you noticed, especially um, with depression, because I think that's become more and more prevalent with children now, which is insane. What is your, um, what have, what have you witnessed with nature connection in, in those two pieces specifically anxiety and depression? Yeah. Um, well, I can say without the sh a shadow of a doubt that it calms both anxiety and depression. And, you know, nature connection is such a meaningful activity for people at any age, because for millions of years, we were 100% outside. And in yeah. the fraction of time, we've moved almost 100% inside. So just the act of being outside. Now, now, initially, for some kids who are used to being inside all the time, being outside will 
create anxiety right. um, because it's unfamiliar to them. In fact, I, I have a student this year who came to us in kindergarten and who had spent a good part of his childhood inside and our school moved hundred percent outside, which it was mostly outside anyway, but hundred percent outside during this COVID year. And at first this child would say, when are we going inside? When are we going inside? Yeah. Do we get to go inside? And after um, just less than two weeks, he completely stopped asking. He completely stopped breaking things in the garden. He was breaking things. Um, no more breaking things. No more asking to go inside. Um, just really deeply engaging with um, the outdoors. And um, I see it over and over and over. Um, you know, because one, the, the whole entrainment with the natural world for one. Yeah. Um, so entrainment, I don't know if you're Listeners. I'm totally familiar. Yeah. You, why don't you define, I don't know if I've mentioned on the podcast, but I'm very familiar with the, the term. Uh, okay. So, so our neurological system actually um, attunes to the environment around us. So whether that's a train running down a track and you live right next to that track and that train's coming and you, your anxiety starts to increase because your body's getting overwhelmed and that's a threatening thing yeah. or you're at the beach and the rhythm of the ocean is often, what is it? 12, cycles or 12 beat is that beats um i'm not a musician so yeah cycles um, yeah so that's a there's a frequency measurement right okay so 12 the frequency of 12 is very calming to our system and it also happens to be um how the waves often come in hmm, and so we if you go for a walk on the beach then you, most people say oh i feel so much better after walking on the beach yeah. and that's part of the reason is cuz your your heart rate your body your neurological system is attuning or it's called entrainment when we attune with our environment mm -hmm. uh, so kids do that right away but then the other thing that happens is once a child starts to focus their attention through their sensory systems which is how we do it um, then they're building a new neural pathway and they're practicing actually focusing and attending on something that is meaningful. So you mm. say, look at the bird and they don't look, look at the bird and they don't look, look at the bird. And eventually they're kind of without, a lot of times kids don't want you to know that they're looking. So then, then the next <laughs> thing you know, they're going, look at the bird. But at the beginning you say, point to the nearest bird and they say, there are no birds. Or you say, point to the nearest bird sound, and they say, there are none. Wow. And then all of a sudden, they're going, wait, there's birds everywhere. When did the birds get here? And, um, huh. and you see that skill transferring, because if you imagine sitting in a classroom, you need to be able to tune everything else out around you to focus in on what the teacher is saying, and that yes. one specific sound. And so by learning to attune to the birds, that's one of the first thing I do with people, mm. because then they're able to pull a sound out of the background environment and focus in on something that is, um, that is deeply anciently wired within us. And so that's why I like to start there. Okay. So you brought up another, uh, one of the points that I wrote down, I think Questa mentioned this to me. Um, so how do you work with parents and well, we did mention kids for a second, but in terms of parents, their fear of nature, like if they have not been connected with nature and they actually have a fear of nature. And I've seen that with, with friends of mine and people who are like, whoa, I don't like, you know, this is a little too much. And, we're, and I'm also really scared of the kids getting hurt. 
How do you deal with that when you're, when you're doing your work? Well, um, information is really helpful. Um, helping parents understand that um, by not doing that, they're actually putting their children more at risk in, in many different ways, both in the um, developmental system, but also we know um, I, I've done some work with, a couple of researchers who research risky free play. Mm. And I actually have a podcast on, on that with um, a woman named Mariana Brussoni. And she's, she's amazing. Her and her colleagues have done so much work on this, but what she was a risk researcher who was trying to make playgrounds safer when she started out her work. Mm. And as she started to do research, she started to discover that the safer the playgrounds were made, the more injuries children were having. Interesting. And that is because um, we don't get those little inoculations. Um, so when you're walking on the ground and you walk on flat ground, it's a very different experience from for your neurological system than walking on ground that's undulating or um, rocky. So every time you put your foot down on the ground that's uneven, your body makes your body sends a message to your brain, and your brain makes a little adjustment, which ends up being an expansion. And that's what learning actually is just a neural expansion. But when you walk on flat ground, there's not a lot of expansion happening because your body isn't anticipating anything different and it's not doing anything different. Mm -hmm. So what they started discovering is the more of those opportunities or what, what we call affordances. So an affordance in nature is something that the natural world can allow for us to in how, how we engage with it. So children look at the world and go, that's a climb onable. That's a roll downable. That's a splashable where adults go, Oh, that's a tree. That's a hill. That's a puddle. Um, kids look at it through what it can do or how they can engage with it. And so the more affordances an environment has, then the more developmental opportunities for expansion there are for that child. And the more expanded on those developmental levels, then the higher their capacity is in life and for learning in general. Oh, and so, yeah, so once parents, you know, all parents want the best for their kids and they, they and, and so fear is just, they don't want their child to be hurt. But once they start really understanding how valuable and important it is for their, their um, development and later safety, then they start getting more comfortable with that. And, and so there's lots of little ways you can begin. You don't have to go. I always like to say, in fact, I just um, wrote, uh, <laughs> I just wrote a book and in the book I, I talk about, you don't have to go outward bound to, um, to get nature. You can literally walk right outside your door. Um, you can hmm. sit on your front step yes. and you can begin right there. Um, well, so that's a great, first off, congratulations on the book. When is the book coming up? I, I I'm, it's right now out, um, looking for agents. <laughs> Very <laughs> so, exciting. Very so, exciting. Yeah, Please keep us posted it. on that. I would love to promote that when it comes out. Thank you. Um, okay. So I think we, this is, let's maybe talk a little bit about what are some specific practices that both as parents working with their kids, as well as just adults in general. Can you give some specific exercises to that people can engage in to exercise our senses, to get out in nature and actually um, grow their connection with nature? Mm -hmm. 
So, um, and it's, you know, there's a couple of things I like to do because no matter where you are, you can do these two things. Um, the first is to have a little, and you probably, I would imagine you have something like this that you teach, but, um, it's have a little hook for yourself or what's what I call a trigger mm-hmm. where um, and that trigger might be when I walk through the threshold of my front door outside to the outside or when I uh, okay. step out of my car. So every time you step out of your car or walk through your front door, you're going to stop and just close your eyes for a moment. Inhale, feel, is there any wind? If there is, what direction is that wind coming from? And just feel that on your skin. By doing that, you are actively engaging in a conversation with your tactile system and the wind. Um, Listen for, can you find the closest bird sound? Because even in the middle of New York City where one of my brothers lives, um, when he started doing this, he started discovering it's filled with birds. And so, and so they're very accessible. It's a very accessible activity. So start Mm -hmm. listening, where are those birds? And over time, you'll, you'll start to notice you have comfort in that sound. Mm. There's one particular bird sound that I love to teach about and have people start with. Um, If you're not used to listening to birds at all, then just listen for the sound. You don't need to know what kind of bird it is. Just listen. And when you hear a sound, how does it feel in your body? Does it feel good? Does it feel alarming? Um, and just start noticing those things. Sit outside and wherever you're comfortable. And that might be just in a city park. It might be on your front doorstep or your back doorstep. And just start really looking around and taking inventory. What is around? And um, notice what, what, where you feel fear and where you feel calm. And maybe write down at the end of the day, if you have a journal that you keep, you know, how it made you feel that day, what you heard. And because and getting comfortable being outside is like getting comfortable with somebody you don't know. It's all about you just begin the conversation. You don't jump in and tell your whole life story right away, right? You, you just yeah. say, hey, you know, where are you from? So you're doing that with the natural world too. You're just inviting a conversation or the natural world actually is inviting a conversation from you and you're just saying yes and having the conversation. Mm, I love it. I love it. And I, I'm flashing on um, this past year and a half. I think I, I found John Young's work uh, right after my mom died. So it was really, I was just totally like ripped open emotionally. And it was kind of the perfect time for that to show up. It was literally like two weeks after I think she passed. And um, I started practicing much of what you're talking about and sitting outside and just tuning in and just recognizing, oh, wow, all these birds are there. I'm not, I don't even recognize them. Like, I'm, like they're there, they're background noise. And yeah. then I started to tune into bird alarms of like, mm-hmm. okay, what is the sound a, a bird makes when it's signaling other birds that there's a threat in the area? And being able to, now to the point now where I walk down the sidewalk here and I'll hear the birds. I'm like, oh, the cat's there. Mm-hmm. There's the cats and I'll look and then the cat comes. Out. I'm like, okay, yeah. Cause they're, they're alerting everyone around that like that cat's there. So I just want to give credence to what you're saying is that just doing that work opened me up in a way that I've, and I'm, I'm a sensitive person. I've lived in nature. I lived in Kauai for a number of years and pretty much walked barefoot for, an, for a couple of years. Like I really, I spent time connecting, but it took me to another level of, 
of really being in tune to my environment and how deeply stimulating it is. It's just like layer upon layer. You go one layer and then there's other layer of the onion opens up and you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't even know that was there. So it's, it's, to me, it's like, it's the ultimate stimulation. Yeah. And, and, you know, I want to say something about that because it breaks my heart constantly when I watch this happening and, you know, parents don't know that, like I said, they all want to do the best for their child. Um, but it is important to know how that happens over time is you are in nature and yet you're tuning it out. Well, why is that? Hmm. That's, that's often because what happens, especially for highly sensitive and exp- children who um, have a lot of energy and want to explore when they're young is from a very young age, they start hearing, no, no, don't touch. No, don't touch. And every time a child goes to reach for something um, and they're told no, that gives a signal to their neurological system to Mm. turn something off, to stop exploring. And after so many no's, then then they start tuning out the desire to explore. And what am I now allowed to do? And so because our brains, like I said earlier, they're wired for um, predicting our environment. So Mm. our brains are constantly searching and scanning and trying to categorize, is this important? Is this important? And initially we learn what's important through watching or pleasing our caregivers because they're going to keep us alive. And so for people to start understanding that it's really important to let young children explore unless it's a safety issue and, or, you know, and I understand that we have to get to the store and places, but how many yeses can you have in a day? And instead of just saying no, have the conversation like, and so for a toddler conversation, isn't going to be very wordy. It's going to be, Oh, touch this instead of no, don't touch that, Um, Mm. you know, and save the real nose for danger, things that are too hot, um, you know, when you really need to get somewhere. And so that their, their systems are, um, are doing what they're designed to do. And that's tuning in to the sounds of the birds, because you mentioned alarm and uh, the bird, bird language, they are researchers are now really going back and looking, it may have been the first language auditory thing that we really started tuning into. And so our listening systems, which a lot of children or adults who have been diagnosed with attention deficit are accused of not being able to listen, right? Um, And so um, when you think about how active a process it is to learn to listen and you start looking at kids tuning out their environment because they've been told no 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 then you start to really see the bigger picture of why a teenager might be severely depressed and anxious without that underlying sensory development and integration which is the foundation for emotional regulation Mm. Uh, we could go on and on. This is the, I mean, I've got like a thousand other questions, but I want to respect your time. So <laughs> we might have to do this again if you're ever available. I want, I think one of the things that I think it's important to maybe start, maybe do a wrap up on is 
what is your suggestion on tech exposure for kids? So what kind of boundaries do you recommend? Is there an age that is appropriate for kids to be more exposed to tech stimulation? I mean, I came up with this. I mean, as I mentioned, I, you know, I started, I was in the computers in like 82, like way wow. early. I was way behind. So I was born in 72. So it was, yeah, I was about 82. And so I watched, I can see the, both the detriments of it as well as mentally stimulate. Like I learned a lot. So there's a lot of things that I'm really grateful for from it. So it's, it's a mixed bag, but now I, I watch kids. I mean, we didn't have anything to the degree that they have now in terms of just visual stimulation, um, audio stimulation. And so, and, and seeing the detriment that it's actually creating, and this is obviously being talked about across the board from your experience, what are your recommendations in terms of um, one, limiting tech exposure as well as to how do you get kids that may be sitting and staring at their iPad to get outside without resistance or getting angry about you're forcing them to go connect with nature because mom and dad want me to go connect with nature. Yeah. That, I mean, that's a whole podcast in of itself, to be honest. Um, I, I can tell you quickly that um, there is a lot, there's an enormous amount of research research that tells us that children under five really shouldn't be using tech because every moment they're on that, they're lacking developmental opportunities. And we already have a fraction in our time that we're living of developmental opportunities than we used to have. Um, So, I mean, ideally that's the ideal. I also will tell you that one of my daughters, um, was very uh, presented very much like what someone would consider ADD or ADHD. And uh, mm. I had to go, I had to put her on two year long detoxes where we just didn't have the internet in the house because, oh. um, because like you were saying earlier, there is much stronger um, addiction percentage in, in the brains of highly sensitive and uh um, characteristically ADHD yeah. or the her type. Um, and, and sometimes that's what you have to do. It's a very slippery slope because once again, yeah. it's so advanced, the technology that it is designed to keep, it is actually designed to keep the children and adults addicted yeah. and on it. In fact, um, if you look at all the games, Minecraft, let's take that one. Everyone yep. knows what Minecraft is, right? Because it's so it's so highly addicting. Kids throw temper tantrums yep. Yep. Um, when you ask them to get off of it. But it's a scan and swipe uh, game. All the games are scan and swipe. And by, what I mean by that is your brain is designed, once again, to scan the environment constantly and categorize. Yep. And those games know that. And so it's really not a fair thing to ask a child, okay, stop your game now because their brain is, it's not capable of that yet. Mm. So what I say in the short term is if you are going to be a family that has technology and you're allowing your young children technology, really be clear and kind for one and um, very limited in that you might say, okay, Now, remember, we agreed one hour a day. I'm going to put this timer on right in front of you so you can see. Okay, here we're starting your one hour. When it's up, I need you you to give me that assurance that we're going to turn it off even if the game isn't over. Okay, 
okay, mom. All right. And then when it comes down to it, you turn it off. It, it, it will be hard. It's designed yeah. to make it hard on parents. And so it's such a slippery slope. Like I said, we could do a whole podcast on that and what works and what doesn't for yeah. some kids. Um, but you know, allowing young children or even teenagers to be on games and gaming because it's uncomfortable to say no is a recipe for disaster. And I have seen that many, many times too. In fact, I have a number of clients um, who, who have teenagers that um, it have become dangerous yeah. because, because they were, it was too hard. And I, I have empathy and sympathy for parents in that situation because I understand, you know, you're doing your best and, and it's difficult to do. And just know that if you don't do it when they're younger, it's going to be way harder when they're older. Oh, that's okay. That's excellent. Yeah. And, and it is, there's no, what I'm hearing again, it's, it's, there's no real easy path through it. Um, I've heard other people talk about having like a technology room where they have, they can't use the technology unless they, they can only use it in one room and that's it. Uh, but it, it's tricky because once you, it's like sugar, like refined sugar and other things, it's designed to be addictive. So uh, you're fighting, you're swimming upstream no matter what. But it sounds like from what you're sharing, like if you engage children in nature connection and they really click, then that's a, that's a, that's a healthy replacement. You have some other replacement for, for, for the thing that's just them sitting down and staring at it on a screen. It is a healthy replacement. Yes. And, and sometimes it takes time, you know, some kids take several months, the more nature, the quicker it happens Mm. and the more sovereignty in nature, the quicker it happens. That's a key. That piece in itself is that's a whole world in itself. I'm just letting, cause letting the kids just go out and play without parents hovering over them. Right. Right. And of course, you know, there's, there's a whole discussion around how to support that initial interaction with nature in a safe way and then yeah. allow more and more sovereignty for a child who's never before really had that. Yeah. Well, in wrapping up, I would love to hear you share a little bit about RX Outside and your nature-led approach uh, membership site. I'd love to hear just about what you're offering so that the audience can hear and, and connect more with what you're doing. Yeah, thank you for that opportunity. Um, I often forget to talk about what I'm doing because I get so excited about the <laughs> conversation. So thank you. Um, yeah, so the membership I started, um, it's still in somewhat of a beta phase, but um, I do have quite a few folks in there. And I really started that because I just, there's only one of me. And I thought, yeah. how can I work with more people? I know that I'm, feeling, yes. I'm killing myself. Um, <laughs> So, uh, so I started this membership and inside there are three different, I call them ripples, not levels. Um, and, uh, so that there's an accessible entry point for each person. And so the first ripple is really just being part of the membership. And then I do, um, a little podcast in there generally once a week. And I do what I call mentoring moments where I'll use an example from an experience and say, this is what Charlie did. And this is how we responded and supported him in building the skill. And this was the outcome. And it's just little um, blurbs. And then, um, and then the next levels include a once a, a once a month online workshop that I'll do. So the topic we just did was um, 
uh, using bird language to understand human behavior. And I have one coming up that's uh, bird language for babies. Um, then I do like sensory cool. Lots of different topics on the workshops, um, but once a month. So, so that is, and I think I sent you a link for that. Um, yes, that- I will be sharing all these links. I'm going to be sharing in the the description of this podcast, and it'll go out in the emailing as well. Yeah, and so, and and then I also do like a live Q and A every week in that in that membership, and then um, and then I do I have a certification for people who want to work with children outside, and so that's a nine month mentorship program. Um, and I do various conferences. There's one coming up, the Primal Living Conference, um, with um, a fella who wrote a great book called Primal. Which, if you haven't heard of it, you probably would love it. Okay, great. I, I saw the I saw the uh, the event that you sent over, but I didn't have a chance to like dig into it. Yeah, and I didn't ask you when this airs, so it might be passed by the time this airs. But um, yeah, so there's that, and uh, yes, it, oh, and and so I announce most of what I do through my email newsletter. Um, I, I'm not hugely active on social media because I get distracted as well, yes. and then I go down rabbit hole. So I use mostly my newsletter. So if people want to just get updates, I don't send constant things, and I'm not like a hard marketer. I just when I've got something to say, I'll say it and I'll send it. Yep. Um, but that's through my website, rxoutside.com. There's a, you know, sign up for our um, nature love letter. And really it's just information and little stories. And, or if I have a new post with Audubon, um, California, who I have a regular kind of column with, um, then I'll announce that there. So, yeah, I think that's most of it. And do you do oh, one-on-one? I think you, I heard you mention something about you do like you, you, for some parents, I don't know if you still do it, but you do like a one day with them and then you do like conferencing after uh, like online. Yes. So I have very, very limited capacity for that. Um, yeah. But I do when I have time and space, I will take on a client um, or two. Um, but I, yeah, it's pretty limited what I can offer with that. Cause I'm so, and I, and I also run a small private school. Um, <laughs> you're busy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so of course I love everything, you know, death by enthusiasm. That's where I'm going to be. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's it. It's what you're doing your work. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. So, but all those things, again, they can get through my newsletter if they just sign up for that. Well, I really want the, I want to encourage the audience. If you're all interested in this, check her workout. It's amazing. rxoutside.com, correct? That's the website? That's correct. Yeah. Yes. Uh, join her email list and I will include those links. And you've all, you were also very generous to uh, offer a handout for this particular podcast. So uh, that will also be in the link uh, in the description so you guys can get it. And can you share briefly about what that handout is? Yeah, it's just a little reminders each. So I, I think I think I sent you the one that just breaks down each sensory system, yes. gives you like a little reminder or or an idea of how to engage that system in a really simple way. Excellent. Kathleen, thank you so much for joining us. It was such a pleasure to connect with you. Yes, you too, Michael. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about the book, The Drummer in the Great Mountain, visit drummerinthegreatmountain.com. To join us on social media, click the links at the top of the homepage. Help us spread the word. We're a small press and reviews really help. If you've been enjoying the podcast or the book, consider writing a review on iTunes, Amazon, Goodreads, or your podcast app. 
If you're new to the podcast and want to quickly get up to speed on the concepts we discuss, check out our free five-day mini course. Visit drummerinthegreatmountain.com forward slash mini course. If there's a topic you'd like us to cover on future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Please send us an email at info at drummerinthegreatmountain.com.